welcome everybody to another episode of the Ikigai Project. Last episode, we had a chance to speak with Andrea Fruling, career coach, and just a, a great person all around, just to talk a little bit about transitions in our career. You know, we talked a little bit about the balance wheel. We talked about different aspects of our lives, social, emotional, spiritual, work, uh, physical, and so, you know, there was a lot of content there, but for this episode, what we're doing is stepping into another world, probably more specifically into the world of relationships, whether that's, you know, the partner that we're with, or perhaps with friendships in our lives or other relationships. And we're really excited to have here today, Diana Chung. She will be a special guest in this episode. Mark and I have known Diana for at least like 10, 15 years now. She's uh, always been an insightful, articulate friend who always brings some really interesting life lessons and and her candid personality is always just a lively part of how we bring out new ideas and lessons that we have in our life. So Diana, really excited to have you here today. You're actually one of the first few people to be interviewed in this podcast. So delighted to have you join us. Yeah, I'm excited to be here, my homies. This feels full circle. It's full circle moment. Absolutely. hundred percent. It's, uh, it's, it's really wonderful to have you here, Diana. And, and, um, yeah, it's, it's a interesting topic to talk about transitions in relation to relationships. Uh, one of the things that stood out in our last conversation, Peter with Andrew was just this idea that we're always changing and transition isn't these one big set event, but rather it's iterative and can be, you know, daily. And so as we think about our relationships, it's an important idea to think about is like, how are we changing? How are we going through these transitions with the different people in our lives and uh, navigating those together? Um, and so, you know, kind of to get us started, Diana, we, we thought we would just um, throw the floor or throw the question over to you. When you think about kind of important relationships in your life, what transitions have been the most challenging or significant for you? Yeah, it's a, it's a, I love that you, you both start with such a deep question. Let's get in there. It's really deep. Yeah. <laughs> go big or go home. Yeah. Um, I think before I answer, I guess the second part of that question, um, which is like the most challenging transitions or the most pivotal ones, I want to talk about what I define as an important relationship because I think that's also really important. So for me, an important relationship is really three buckets. It's my family. It's my romantic partner, my partner in life. And it's my most intimate friends. So I think that's just like important context um, to to sort of know about me. Um, In terms of the transitions that have been challenging and significant, that's so juicy. I had a really hard time coming up with a response to this. Um, But for me, they've been two different categories. One is where I feel like there's been huge internal shift within me that's affected or impacted my relationships or where there's been big external shift that has also impacted my relationships. So the external shifts were all really common with, right? It's moving, maybe moving countries, moving provinces, the entry of a new relationship um, in a friendship, right? So I'm dating someone new, but I've been with a friend for a long time. Um, even new job can, can cause some of that, um, and not just entry into a new romantic relationship, but ex- exit to heartbreak. Um, and what does that look like? And you two have actually been there for, I think a lot of these challenging moments. Um, so when I think about that question, I, I have a couple of vivid memories 
of the most challenging ones, if I were to highlight them. One is the entry of a new romantic partner into some of my most significant friendships. Two, the ending of my last significant relationship before my husband today, um, that heartbreak. Um, and then and I think the movement to another province also was challenging on my relationships, um, especially my family ones. And it's still challenging today. I'm trying to find a way to navigate it. So I know that's not like a, a really deep answer yet, but that, that's, where, that's where my mind goes with that question. I think it's actually really deep and profound. Uh, there's a lot there that we could explore. Um, it's interesting how you broke that into the internal and the external. So, you know, for you going through, we just, you talked about three different areas. You can maybe pick one, but what particularly would you say is, is was challenging about one of those experiences? Yeah, I think I want to talk about the heartbreak one because it's been a really long time and I don't think I've ever unpacked it again with either of you. Like I remember when it first happened, Pete and I actually sat, I remember this so vividly, sat down at a cafe and we unpacked the, when it was really raw and fresh, but it's been almost 10 years since I've been out of that relationship. So I, I think I've I think I've really processed it. So now it's a good time to talk about it. Um, have you both been through heartbreak, by the way? Like really significant heartbreak, visceral heartbreak before? Mm-hmm. I. I feel like I I have. Pete, Pete has. Mark, do you think you have? Peter is nodding yes, but I would say in my experience, based on where you're going with your relationship and you know, having seen other friends, I wouldn't say that I've experienced meaningful heartbreak. So yeah, that would be my perspective. Okay. You win a prize. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get out. But I mean, I think there, yeah. I mean, I think I think I don't want to take us away from where we're going w- with what you want to share, but I think there's probably a reason for that in my own experience that I'd be happy to share. But um, so yeah, for you going through heartbreak, um, you know, what was talk to us a bit more about that? Yeah. So I don't want to get too sobby with the story, but I think it's an important one because I think when it comes to heartbreak and the way people deal with heartbreak it's it's literally a form of grief of deep grief and i think with grief comes a lot of shame as well um at least it did for me so what happened was um i was with this man for four years i was all in we were about to we were going to get married you know the future was planned we've all been in those relationships right where i know this is going i'm all in let's get there um and then something happened along the way where his feelings changed and it wasn't communicated to me really clearly and then one day he just drifted and drifted and drifted until I called him out on it I think a lot of people have been through this um and then he called it off and so for me it was a completely blindsided ending so one day you're with someone for four years have your whole life planned um have your habits and your rituals and then the next day it's completely gone So what was really interesting for me was my reaction. I remember um, he had come over to my house to do the breakup. And after he left, I went to the kitchen and literally fell to the floor and I could not breathe. I could not breathe for probably 30 minutes. It was very scary because I never been through the type of pain where it courses through you physically and it's uncontrollable. And then I couldn't sleep, actually, for weeks. Um, But what was really interesting with the process of that heartbreak was, one, when you can't recognize yourself in in that moment. So I, I felt so needy. I needed my mom to sleep with me. I needed to call my friends every single day. Like anything to just 
distract myself from the pain I was doing. I was exercising four hours a day, like anything that I could to distract myself. And I couldn't pull myself together. So when I would call my sister, my mom, my friends, even our really good friend Cecilia, she's one of my best friends, people could not understand the devastation, number one. But they also couldn't understand how I could go through this level of devastation and how I couldn't pull myself together. And so I think what was really hard about that time period is that felt really isolating. Because the people I thought who knew me, the people I thought who could see me deeply, the people I thought would be okay to see me in my most raw form, they couldn't handle it. They couldn't handle it because they weren't used to it. Um, and so that was really tough. That was that was probably one of the hardest transitions that I've ever been through in my life and a huge impact on my relationship with people, for sure. Because if they haven't, I realized that if they've never been through it before, they could not get it. They could not understand. Their advice was, my father was just like, move on. What's wrong with you? Get over it. That was literally his, he was loving. He was trying to be loving, but that was his advice. It wasn't helpful. It wasn't helpful at all. People couldn't meet me where I was. And that was really tough. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not sure how much of that is resonating with you, with you both, maybe Pete more with you, but that was a really good one. Yeah. I felt that, like I felt that before and it's, uh, it's, it's definitely a pretty isolating place to be because you just need the time to process it. And, you know, I think the, the pain is, it just needs time to, to heal. And I, I think there's a lot of doubt, regret, shame, even guilt that comes with it, that you just need time to heal and know that there's a future beyond that. Um, I'm just curious for, you know, those of us hearing the story and like going through it um, or have gone through it or maybe going through it now, how, how did you come through that? Like, how, how long did it take? And when did you start feeling like yourself again? You know, that's a really tough, I would say, um, from like a physiological standpoint, being able to sleep, like do the just basic rhythms, like sleep, feed myself, go to work. Um, you know, that, that took me, I would say about three months to feel like I could manage that and be a baseline functioner. Then it took me about a year to compute in my mind that he was no longer going to be a part of my future. That took me about a year. But I would say even to today, it's very far and few in between now, 10 years later, but there's still moments where my mind goes back or my mind and my feelings go back to that time period. So to answer your question more directly, I'm I'm over the heartbreak and I'm I've now built a new future. I've now renewed myself and you know feel better for it. But I don't think that the lesson from the relationship ever goes away, if that makes sense but you can pull yourself together. And to your point, that just takes time. Yeah. And speaking of lessons, you know, now well removed from that, from that relationship, what did you learn about yourself that you kind of reflect on today? It's like, I'm a different person now. I I, I see the world in a different way or, um, you know, my, my self-perception's different. Is there anything that you discovered as you reflect on this relationship? Yeah. I think the one is I, and this happens to all of us and it's not a bad thing, but I felt like I did lose myself in that relationship. There was a lot of compromise and a lot of, um, I think I wouldn't say sacrifice cause I did it willingly, but a lot of withholding 
some of my either deepest desires or who I actually was to suit this other person and to create create synergy and compatibility. And there was a lot of moments throughout my relationship with my ex where I felt myself holding back, or I felt myself going, I know it, I naturally would act this way or say this thing, and I I I didn't. And I think what happens is that erodes over time, but then it, it snowballs, it becomes unsustainable. And where I thank my ex is I think he recognized that and pulled the plug. But had he not done that, I think I would have kept going because I'm people pleasing and accommodating that way. And so now being a in um, I wouldn't say vastly different relationship because my partner, my you guys know my husband Nico. My husband Nico today has very similar characteristics to my ex boyfriend, but there's a difference in how I feel like I show up in our relationship versus my my latter one, which is I there's no holdbacks anymore with me. It's and and this is good and bad, all of it. He sees all of it, and I think that's that's been the change for me is. Yes, relationships require compromise. And yes, it's not always 50-50 all the time in order to make it work. But you still need to feel like you can be 100, I'm talking 100% yourself. And this person still accepts you for that. Yeah. Despite the fact that there's conflict, there can be conflict. So yeah, I'm hearing a lot about authenticity. And I think that might come up as we explore more of these transitions as it pertains to romantic relationships. But I am curious, Diana, uh, you said it with passion when you said, oh man, it was so challenging when my my close friends and even my family, like they didn't understand the challenges I was going through as I was dealing with this difficult breakup. With the shoe being on the other foot, like imagine you being there for a friend who is going through a similar experience, like what advice or what thoughts come up to your mind having gone through what you've gone through on how you could show up and, and be... Uh, great support to someone who's had this big experience in this big transition. Yeah, that's such a good question, and and I've I've had situations since my breakup where I've I the shoe has been on the other side. I think one like how can you just meet people where they are emotionally? So if my friend shows up to me an absolute wreck, I'm going to let her be a wreck for however long she needs to be a wreck for, um, with no judgment, no advice giving, no toxic positivity. Uh, none of that bullshit. Um, Because in those moments, people don't want to hear that shit. They don't want to hear that you're going to make it to the other side and everything's okay. I know he was a shitty boyfriend anyway. I don't want to hear that shit, right? I want you to be here with me, feel the sadness, feel the grief, and just show up for me. That's it. But that's actually very difficult for people to do. Because I think the natural human human reaction tendency is to fix, is to solve, is to be helpful. but I, I think you need to hold back on that. It's incredibly hard to do. And especially like, I think my role often that I jump to quickly is the problem solver. And um, so I try right now because I'm not maybe in, in other just maybe situations where the stakes aren't so so intense as such a meaningful, long lasting relationship ending. But when you know I'm with my wife Jess or with a friend, and they're like, "This situation's come up," blah blah blah. I always I try to get in the habit of saying, "What are you looking for from me in this conversation?" Um, just so I'm clear, like, are you looking for advice or do you want to just vent and share? Um, but sometimes it's like literally asking the person what are they looking for um, can be so helpful, and it's helping me uh, change my mindset and not always try to jump in with solutions. 
Yeah, I think that's super helpful. I think it's a little different maybe in person or through a situation like a breakup. You can tell automatically what the person needs. Yeah. <laughs> what do yeah. you need right now, even yeah. though you're a yeah. pool of mess? <laughs> yeah, yes, I agree. But I, I totally get the intention of the question mark. And people don't do that. People don't take the time to go, look, what do you need from me right now? And I'll, I'll play that role for you, right? Yeah. Because then you miss the mark if you don't ask the question. So... This is great. This is already such a rich conversation around romantic relationships. We could probably end the podcast and people get a lot of value <laughs> from done. it. It's done. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's wrap it up. <laughs> now, I think, um, you know, as we, the, so context for people listening here, um, Mark just got married in December. Diana got married last summer and I'm getting married this summer. And so we're all kind of in this last 12 months of major transitions and, and into uh, stepping forward into the next step of our relationships. Um, I want to throw this question to Mark and ask him, uh, you know, I think we can all get around to it just around how did you find that person in your life? And what 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 did that look like? How did you know that um, you know, this was the right person with the similar outlook and, and, and life values that you were looking for. So Mark, you want to kick us off on this part? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's a lot to be said here. I think it kind of ties into what Diana was sharing earlier about, you know, my hesitancy to, or my, my situation of not being in heartbreak. I mean, I had, uh, prior to meeting my wife, I had dated, uh, in many relationships and, uh, but you know, probably the most meaningful relationship I had was uh, early university for four years. But but apart from that, I think because the breakup was really challenging, the breakup was initiated on my end, and uh, you know, obviously mutually we we found a way. But ultimately, it, it was a different circumstance, and it was so hard and devastating that like I was like, okay, if I'm ever gonna seriously commit to somebody, I want it to make sure that it's right. And to make a long story short, though, I think for me to get to a point where I got. Um, open to being comfortable with heartbreak, uh, because it is a lot of risk, right? Um, you're letting down your guard, you're being more vulnerable. It was a journey for me. And, um, people who know me professionally or as a friend, uh, I'd like to think like I'm someone who's very motivated, uh, always trying to improve myself, always trying to grow and learn when it came to relationships though. Um, it was tough to, to figure out like, how do I get to a point where I'm going to find somebody that I really want to be spending the rest of my life with. And, you know, to be honest, uh, I think like mental well-being and talking uh, and getting some therapy and getting some help uh, where I could maybe explore my childhood and some of the life experiences that I had growing up helped me get to a place where I could be more vulnerable and could be more open um, to put myself in a situation where I, I, I could potentially experience what you shared, Diana, and massive heartbreak. Um and I, I, that was important self-growth that I needed to take to get to the point where I could find somebody like Jessica and, um, you know, really lean in and not, not, not in a way that was the right pace, but in a way that that would make sense and allow us to understand each other. And there's a lot of things that came out of those sessions. I think one of them was um, being really clear on what your vision is for your life as well. Um, and that can change. Of course, it's malleable where we just talk about how we change all the time, but it was, it was important to head into early dating and be able to share, at least for what I was looking for, be able to share with somebody a vision for the life I was trying to build long-term and see whether or not that resonated and what their vision was. And, you know, could there be alignment there? Uh, and I was lucky that, I did that with Jess and we found that shared sense of values and vision early on. And 
to your point earlier, Diana, I think just being true to yourself, uh, we met through uh, hinge and online dating. Uh, I think the more that one can be authentic to their true self and not try to hide, you know, their strengths or their flaws or however you want to describe it and just be themselves, the more likely they are to find somebody. So I'll pause there, but those are just some ideas and, um, yeah, I'm happy to, to take it wherever you want to go next. So on the, on the point about sharing your vision, cause I think that's something you did really, really well, just, you know, being a friend and, and seeing your relationship grow. Cause you know, you had, by some magic power, you were able to convince somebody who had more recently, you know, started her life in Toronto, moved to Vancouver and, you know, follow this new dream that you guys were crafting together. How, how did you come about, how did you approach the process? Cause I can't, I can imagine like, you can't just like throw it all at them at once, but you also don't want to like hold back from, Hey, uh, you know, just little pieces of, of what you want to do. What what did that look like? He showed her a Pinterest. He showed her a Pinterest board. That's what happened. He was like, here's my here's my mood board with my vision. Yeah, I yeah. That. I don't know. It's 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 tricky. I think um, there was a lot of contextual pieces that also were important to call out. Like we met at the height of the first wave of the pandemic in 2020, and um, our first two dates were actually video calls because at that time we were in Toronto and you couldn't meet each other in person uh, due to the quarantine rules that that the city had in place. So uh, some pretty unusual circumstances, but ultimately um, some of the work that I did in my own self-growth was talking about blending and vulnerability. So we already talked about vulnerability, like, and that's something that I'd say I'm still continually to work on. It's not like a box that I've checked and now I'm perfect at it, but it's like, how can I be more open and, and forthright and sharing um, you know, my insecurities when I'm hurt, challenges, goals, dreams, et cetera. And then this idea of blending, which was how can I bring in this case, Jess, as we're dating into all facets of my life and find out more quickly whether or not this is going to work or, or thrive because she's meeting my family pretty quickly in the relationship. And we're doing things that really test the relationship by driving for 30 hours in a car um, and having some of those moments in those first few months helped to, um, you know, get to the heart of it and figure out if we're going to have a long journey together or one that might be more short lived. So this idea of blending and vulnerability, I think, came up um, in our relationship. Can I ask, Mark, because I, I think this is really fascinating because you're not that your relationship with Jess is fresh, but it's like fresher than mine. In the beginning stages, and I hear this with a lot of friends when we're talking about their dating journey or or whatever, I feel like in the beginning stages, it's really hard to know what who's the right person, like what are the criteria. So you came in with a vision board, which I would in my head imagine is, you know, a set of not conditions, but you know, you 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 have criteria, you have expectations, right, of this person. So how do you know throughout your journey with Jess, especially in the first year, that you're like, okay. I might not like this from her, but it's tolerable and still fits with my vision, Vision, right? Versus, mm, like, I don't know if that's a negotiable or a non-negotiable. And do I need to, like, knock her out? <laughs> I'm talking, like, very, in a very crass way. But I think you get what I'm saying, right? So throughout the first year, how do you make, how do you do some sense making around, is this person right or not? Because there's, you can latch on, you should latch on to things, right? Yeah, I should clarify. I'm very supportive of vision boards. Uh, I didn't actually have a vision board for <laughs> I was entering my, my dating uh, and I did like pull it out uh, in my first days. Uh, but 
but you know, if somebody wants to try that, that's, you know, definitely a strategy, but no. And, and the vision idea was like, not so particular and detailed. It was more just like, you know, how do you, what kind of lifestyle do you want to live? What kind of attributes are important. So some examples is, you know, I'm someone that is looking to live a lifestyle that move where movement and active being active are, are a heavy component and having access to nature easily to go and explore and maybe do small hiking or, you know, just being out on trails is going to be meaningful where that happens. I think that when you start pigeonholing and saying like, we need to be in Vancouver uh, or we need to do X, like you're just starting to limit the pool of possibility. Um, and, you know, uh, so I, I could have been in Europe uh, if that's how the stars align to kind of live some of those attributes. So I think it's like having ideas that are broad, but malleable. And then it's more important to have values alignment. And that's not easy to do. But I could tell that Jess is from the Dominican Republic. We talked about that in a couple episodes. But for listeners that don't know, we have very different cultural backgrounds but what was really striking was regardless of those culture differences, you could tell that we approach life and have similar values in what we hold dear. You know, another example being we would far rather have our money spent on experiences over having lots of things. We don't really value having a lot of uh, a big square footage real estate. We, you know, those kinds of questions, those comments, those are things we explored early on. And I think it's important to have to walk the right balance between being principled and what you're looking for, but also being flexible. Um, cause nobody's ever going to have that complete direct correlation to your vision. Right. But I feel like that's a challenge. So I also don't believe in perfection and finding your soulmate and the perfect person. I think it's two whole people coming together and, and cleaning the slate essentially and making a new vision for themselves. But I think the challenge is I've seen in a lot of relationships where people talk themselves into it using this very philosophy, right? Which is no relationships perfect. I can work around this, right? So it's like, to me, it's both, it's both a great thing to have flexibility, but also I've seen it swing the other way where it becomes more of a justification. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, this is probably a bit tangential, but I always, I always really bothered me. Um, when I go into the friendship frame, when I um, had a longtime friend and they suddenly were a completely different person when they found a, a new romantic partner and their identity really shifted. And I'd like to think you guys have been my friend for a long time that um, my core self obviously is continuing to change, but like I'm still Mark and I don't really change drastically uh, because I'm with, in this case, Jess, uh, we're married. And I think that goes back to that authenticity. And I don't know how you get to that point, but I think it's important to be really rooted in understanding yourself and um, yeah, being flexible, but having a, a good sense of your self-identity so that you don't, as you said, I mean, sometimes it takes a meaningful transition or experience to get there. I mean, it sounds like in your relationship with Nico, Diana, like you have a way clearer sense of self-identity and I've lived on my own. I've traveled alone. I've done a lot of things where I'm getting to know myself and um, yeah, it can be small things, but taking a weekend or a Saturday and going and being alone and journaling, for instance, there's lots of different ways we can get to know ourselves and get more comfortable with ourselves. And when you love yourself, I think it's easier to confidently embrace a relationship and be comfortable with like being flexible and not losing yourself in that process. That's just my, my thoughts. Yeah. I think I would just build on that by adding, you know, it's really important to recognize the relationships you had as a role model 
for when you were younger, when you were a kid, right? Seeing your parents and if that was a good relationship or not a good relationship. Unfortunately for me, it wasn't a good relationship. My parents, you know, were very much like not on speaking terms for a lot of my formative years when I was growing up. And there was a lot of tension in the household. And that's the the example that I saw. And, you know, as I was growing up, I think it created this sense of just not a great way to be thinking about relationships. And, you know, there's like theories out there on like attachment theory and how we attach with others. Do we do it in a healthy way where where we find boundaries and balance and unconditional love? Or do we find it in ways of being, you know, kind of enmeshed with another person where you, you lose yourself and that makes it really difficult to find the trust that even if this doesn't work out, you'll be okay. And and that's something I struggled with, um, you know, even up to like five years ago, where I would really be devastated if some a relationship didn't work out, even if it was like fairly short, you know, because there was this like uh, baggage I was carrying around attachment. And if this relationship doesn't work out, I, the world will call come crumbling around me. And I, and I think that's something really important uh, for for you know, for myself to, to unpack where I just know, you know, Hey, there's certain things that I'm carrying in my life that come from that come from outside of me, from my relationships that I saw. And that's important to recognize and, and of course to work through. Um, but having that safety and security in relationships and knowing that at the end of the day, you're going to be okay. is is such an important foundation for, for yourself and all the relationships that you have in your life. Yeah, P, I think you touched on something that I think a lot of people don't take the time to explore. So I'm, I'm going to kind of connect what Mark said to what you just highlighted. So Mark talked a lot about understanding and learning about your core self. That's obviously going to evolve incrementally over time, but really like taking the time to explore and understand that because once you do, you can show up in relationships with that kind of energy and you're going to receive the energy that matches that. I think that's an important piece. And then P, to your point is like, Part of understanding our core self is what is the baggage and the shit we're carrying from those early days relationships. And I think the one to our parent is pivotal because they're the first person we recognize love. Um, we receive love. We understand what our needs are. We, you know, all these kind of things. And I think it would be naive to say that none of us bring baggage like that from our parental relationships, even healthy ones, into our romantic relationships. Uh, well, this is, this is, I think, a really interesting transition into what I think like to think about of like, how do you, how do you marry, I guess, two core people into one, right? And then also in the context of aligning on big, I would call them big subject managers, subject matters in life, right? So things like finances, things like rearing and parenting kids, um, things like your relationship with your parents. So I like to think of this as how do you balance individualism? So who you who you are and what you need as just like one person versus what as a collective in your relationship is also required. So maybe Pete, I'll throw this question to you to start it off. Have you found a balance in that maintaining your individualism versus your collective identity? And then also how do you connect that to um, aligning on some of these big things in life. 
Yeah, it's that's such a, a juicy question. And I don't know if I have a, a great answer for it. But um, I think with May and I, we continue to do things that we both enjoy doing. Um, so for me, it's like, you know, having a community outside of uh, with my CrossFit gym, you know, I, I go there on a, on a weekly basis, work out, take care of my physical um, side of myself. And also, you know, embedding myself in community. That's, that's an aspect that she gives me a lot of space to do because she knows it's really important to me. Um, you know, something that we'd align that's kind of bigger picture is um, getting a dog. You know, we've always wanted to uh, get a dog and we got a rescue this fall and we talked about it in a previous episode. And that's one where we were like, yeah, we're both invested in, you know, getting uh, a dog that we can both support and, you know, learn how to take care of. Um, and that gave us a chance to come together. Um, which I think is really valuable. Like one, it's one thing to get a dog and add to your family, but for us to spend more time training it, um, feeding it, you know, all the things that go into, to taking care of another creature has actually allowed us to come together a little bit better. So I think what we try to do is just like find ways that we, you know, respect each other's space that we know are important to each other. And then also find these like opportunities where we both come together, whether that's taking care of our dog or going out for date nights, you know, things like that, that allow us just a space to bond and um, yeah, connect with each other. Yeah. I feel like um, if I look at couples that I admire and feel really inspired by is the ones who have that balance that you just described, Pete. So do I see these two individuals finding space for themselves so investing in their own hobbies and their own things and their own circle of friends. And does the other partner support that? Are they not threatened by that? And then they make space to, to come together as a couple and do things that that make sense for the two of them. And, and those are the type of couples I really admire um, because it's it, it's it's a dynamic I would like to strive for in my relationship too, because I think it's it's the most not, I would say the healthiest, but the one I admire the most. Yeah. Mark, I'm not sure you're nodding your head, but I feel like you would, you probably align with that as well. Yeah. I mean, I think it's so interesting. There is an article that forever has been imprinted. It was uh, people who know me know I'm a fan of the school of life and they talk about how different long-term love is from short-term love and how both are equally beautiful. Not that we shall all be in the race to 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 be in pursuing of long-term love but there's a lot of beauty that comes from short-term love which for me at the time i read it i was not in a committed relationship so it was actually very um freeing to be like okay like just because i'm not in a committed relationship doesn't mean that um i it's 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 not it's it's a bad thing and there's so much wonder and joy that comes from casual dating, whatever you call it, short-term dating. But what was striking about long-term commitments particularly was that it was really a union of two people and like a merging of two becoming one in a sense. And I agree with you totally, Diana, like independence and freedom is like, those are important values, thankfully to both Jess and I, and having some space to be oneself and separate from the partner is critical. With that said, like there's a lot that is unifying um, and needs to be thinking long-term when it comes to a committed marriage. And I kind of thought it was a little bit, uh, I don't know, I just didn't really buy into that totally, but it was crazy. Like even this idea that the two families blend together, 
I never really pursued and started dating, for instance, with Jess, thinking that, you know, I'm going to really, it didn't really matter to me about building relationships with whomever the person's family or friends would be. But over time, like we've really seen those connections and I've been touched by the connections that Jess's parents, for instance, have built with some of my family and her family and all those wonderful things. And so I'm kind of rambling, but I think ultimately um, it's recognizing that the things that make a long-term relationship thrive are different than short-term. And um, yeah, there, like, there are some key things that need to be considered, you know, uh, to make that a success. I mean, one example is just like, the financial element of, of being in a relationship. Like there's a whole element of that, that can be stressful and challenging, but also really strategic and helpful (laughs) if you're talking through it. So, yeah, but I guess, uh, well, I mean, so that's one side of it, but I am curious because we haven't talked about this yet. One, one thing that does strike me is all of us are in relationships where our partners have a different cultural background than oneself. And so there's just a lot of culture represented between our three relationships. And we're all either married or becoming married within a year's time as, as a group of three friends. So, um, you know, how has it been navigating the different cultures for each of us? Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts, Diana or Peter, but, um, has that been a challenge at times? Uh, what does that look like for you? Yeah, I feel like Pete and I would have a lot in common around this because we both Asian homies. Um, <laughs> Japanese, I'm Korean. It's true. Yeah, it's true. Um, so I'll be interested in Pete's perspective, but also you, Mark, because you're also married to an immigrant and she's biracial as well. Um, I think for me, it's interesting you touched upon finances because that was a big pain point for Nico and I. And I think a lot of it was driven by culture. Um, so, but also a lot of it was driven by immigration, stupid immigration. <laughs> So um, I'll give you an example. I well, let me let me contextualize this first. So I come from a second generation Korean immigrant family, and in Korean cultures, and I'm sure Japanese cultures are very similar. Um, it's about hierarchy, um, and so when it comes to finances and paying for things, it's always the eldest person and always the male who pays for things. And so I grew up with my father paying for everything. Um, I grew up with my grandfather paying for everything. <laughs> Right. You know, me as a woman down the chain, it, it, it was always a sense that, you know, the Korean man, it's, it's patriarchal, will take care of you, a.k.a. will pay for things and they are going to be financially responsible. So that was kind of ingrained in me. And then my ex-boyfriend was also Korean. So he got that. And that was a relationship I was in for four years. My husband is from Finland. They're incredibly individualized when it comes to paying for things and their financials. So I remember our second date. And I, I mean, to give Nico some credit, he was still in school, so didn't have a ton of money. Fine. <laughs> but he took me to TIFF to see an independent movie. We walk up to the pay to pay line to pay for the whatever, $15, $20 tickets, like nothing crazy. And I remember this. I still I still hold this against him to this day. So he turns to me and he's like, OK, so you want to buy your ticket and I'll buy mine? And in that moment, I didn't know how to react because I'm like, buddy, this is our second date. The tickets are $15 and you're asking me to pay for this. I don't think this is going to work out. <laughs> that was <literally> my reaction. <laughs> um, but I, I use that, that story. Obviously, we're married, so it's fine. But I use that story to highlight financially. I think him and I have similar spending habits, which is helpful. Um, we're a little bit more on the frugal conservative side, but we also like believe in investment and all these kind of things. 
Um, and Mark, like to your point of what we spend our money on is also aligned. So on experiences, less on things. But um, I think for me, I feel taken care of when I'm paid for. And in our, because that's how I grew up. But in our relationship, that's not how it was. So when he immigrated to this country, I was taking on the full financial burden of our rent, of our food, um, of most of our sponsorship costs. Um, and that actually graded a little bit on our, our relationship in the beginning. It was a necessary thing we had to do. It wasn't his fault, um, but it was tough. And even to this day, he's we have split accounts and we have joint accounts. But if he had a choice, he'd probably be okay with all split accounts. Where I'm like, no, one money. We are one with the money, right? And I do think that's cultural. I do think that there's no one right way to tackle finances in a healthy marriage. But the point is one needs to be talking about it, ideally pre uh committing to each other long-term because it is uh, an important topic. And um, that's a really interesting story that you shared. And I don't know, it doesn't have to be finance related, but Peter, for you, how has it been just with the different cultures and navigating with May? Yeah, I, I'll just share one quick thing, um, kind of related with culture, but not. Um, I think the way that that we were raised is is very different. So May was born in a small town in Northern Ontario, 600 people. Um, I was born in a big city and, uh, you know, we come from like a diff very, very different ways of interacting with our families and our community, um, from her like family ecosystem. She also had a very supportive parent, um, and her mom who was always like encouraging her to do everything that she wanted to do. And, you know, had that kind of really warm and supportive group of people around her, uh, including her siblings. Uh, while for me, I think I was probably more in like a, a competitive environment where my sister's only like a year and a half younger than me. And, you know, Asian culture very much like excel in your academics, excel in extracurriculars and do well. And so the way I learned about family and relationships and love was, uh, you know, probably more transactional instead of this unconditional love. And that is something that um, I've been learning how to combine with May's approach of, of how to be in a, in, in a relationship. Um, so, you know, last year uh, May had some health issues and um, I think the way I reacted was probably more with that stiff upper lip well not probably like it was with that stiff upper lip get better like you know um uh you know it, it was it was it was probably more like not indifferent but just like kind of come on get better like you know i i'm here like tell me what you need instead of that like loving hey i you know i'm i'm here to support you um you know tell me everything that you need it, it was like a different way of being with each other and her expectations probably weren't met with the way that i you know came to her and supported her um so it that was probably one of our hardest moments in our relationship is like giving getting to the point where i can give her what she needed um and understanding the way I reacted was from like the 
you know, the cultural background I was coming from. And so I don't know, I it's probably pretty rambly there, but like there's beyond just our, you know, nationalities being different. There was like how we raised and the expectations that we had with each other that I had to kind of explore and understand better and come to a place where we can both feel like we're, we're supported. Yeah. So. Yeah. I I can certainly relate to that and uh, not so much on the cultural side, but certainly on, on the family unit and how I was brought up, but it was very much, you know, my parents got divorced when I was fairly young and um, we just generally are a family of, of, you know, I was raised to, to be quite independent. And so, uh, there's been moments where I've kind of reflected on how I've shown up just, uh, because I've always been, I'll figure this out. I'm on my own. I'm a lone wolf kind of thing when I, when I encounter adversity. So that resonates. And for me, like with Jessica and her background from the Dominican Republic, I've been, um, I think really touched, uh, in many ways by how she approaches, um, the dynamic with her family, um, they're talking quite frequently, you know, for me, I'm talking to my family, I'd like to think, you know, we have a good relationship, but we talk not that regularly. But for her, it's it's quite a few times a week. And, um, you know, even just in her adjusting to Canada and how to make friends here has been challenging, where you meet somebody pretty quickly in the Dominican. And she has shared with me that they're quick to want to invite you over. And there's a lot more of an acceleration just to start meeting in person. Whereas here, you know, that doesn't happen, especially not in Vancouver, you got to work your way towards that. And so uh, I've seen it though as a really wonderful positive and it's shown me a, a great example of a family unit and there's things of that that I'm really hoping that we can build in our own family together um, of, of connection and support and um, yeah it's been really touching to see uh, yeah how she how she interacts with her her sister and her parents so um, yeah it's but it's great to just be talking about these these cultural differences and how that shows up in our relationships and but I'm, I'm, I'm cognizant that, uh, you know, we, we only have so much time to have a conversation. I did want to just touch, I, I mentioned it and it's come up a couple of times organically about friendships. Um, but I thought I might just ask you, Diana, just before we kind of close out this conversation for you, you know, we're, we're in our mid thirties, uh, you know, how, how, how is it with friendships and dealing with major transitions? Um, you know, we talked about moving to a new city. We talked about friends having a major life milestone and have that impacts them what's kind of your take on transitions and friendships yeah you're catching me at a really interesting time with this because i'm i've been finding first of all this topic has been top of mind hence why i suggested we chat about it um but secondly it's it's actually been a little bit scary and a bit of a slippery slope for me because i'm finding that as we age um and especially at this stage in time where people are booed up right um have significant others entering marriages starting their families um, I've been finding hanging on to intimate friendships a lot tougher now than I did five, six, seven, eight years ago. Um, and what I'm finding, and this is not with everyone, because obviously I have you two and I have a couple of really good friends, is um, especially when people start to get married and have children with some some friends, I find that they're going very insular um, and more focused on their nuclear family, which is fair enough. Um, and I can give a lot of leeway for the first year, but I think. What's hard is what used to serve you in your friendships and what connected you in the past may no longer do that as people get married and depend on their core family more. And as they have kids, their priorities shift. And the friendships of finding difficult is hanging on to the ones who appreciate their friends, but don't see friendship as an investment, I think. 
or that's the way I'm looking at it. And so I'd be curious if the two of you have encountered the same thing, but at this stage of life, I'm finding it really hard to hang on to really good friends and to have them even show up. You know, it feels very, we just feel very disconnected. We feel very siloed with the exception of a handful of people. I feel like Pete was feeling this. Yeah. 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 Let, let's throw it to Peter. It, I, I'm just curious, like, does it feel like there's a, a distance issue or is it even people within, you know, where you are, like not too far away to hang out with or. No, because um, for some people it's been distance that's eroded the friendship for sure. But then others, it hasn't made any difference. Like Pete, you were in Toronto. I'm here. We've been able to maintain our friendship. Same with my friend Cecilia, who's also in Toronto. Um, I I think I've been reflecting on this. I think it's more the person's own choices. So like, we'll take a relationship, for example. So one of my really good friends entered into a new relationship and I feel like she's gone deep. And so there's a, there's a, there's a loss. There's like a lack of connection there. Right. And then I've had some other friends where due to like physical distance, it's just neither one of us want to try for whatever reason. We don't think it's worth hanging on to but then some other friends it is i don't know it's really weird i don't i don't know what the what the criteria is like what drives people to decide who to hang on to versus who to not but i think ultimately you know coming back to the beginning about changing all the time is for me with friendships is always a question as of is who i am today the this evolved person of me still compatible with the evolved person with the evolved other person and that's always the question I'm asking myself. And it's tough in friendships because I think in romantic relationships, we more have a societal obligation to either say no or yes and like communicate that, right? Mm-hmm. Versus in friendships, there's a lot more acceptance around ghosting or not talking about it, right? Or not talking about the disconnection. We're like, we're just going to let it pitter. And like, who cares? So I've kind of touched on a lot of things there, but it's, yeah, it's it's been interesting. I, I find it more challenging at this stage of life friendships. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think you, you hit on a really good point and it's it's probably worth unpacking in another conversation is with friendships. It's tricky because there's just no rule book. Like with relationships, you have some sort of, you, you, you have labels, you have laws, like, you know, there's certain ways that you enter in a relationship and stay in it and you can get certainly lost in it. Um, and I think that goes back into like how people get attached to others and depend on the relationship for their identity, which is obviously not a, a very healthy thing to do with friendships. It's, it's a little bit easier to go in and out. Um, and yeah, I, I'm not, I'm going to like, you know, I'm not the best person to keep in touch out there. I'm going to be honest, but um I think also as a friend, maybe on the other side who has lost touch with the other person, I think there's like shame and guilt for not keeping in touch and not being better, not being living up to the same relationship you held in the past. So I feel like that can be part of why people drift apart is like that, that, that guilt and not finding the right way to get back in touch. And that's something we should have language around. Like we should be talking about it. So it's not as embarrassing because when things get in the way, we, we all, we all drift apart in in certain ways. So how do we get back together and re, you know, reestablish that maybe in a different way? 
Totally. I think it's, it's, it just comes down to like, are we willing to have difficult, vulnerable conversations with people and, and, and say, Hey, I miss you. Like you haven't been around and it's felt really hurtful. And I think in friendships, it's really easy to avoid those kind of conversations. At least it is for me. I avoid them all the fucking time. Like what's the point of, what's the point of bringing this up? We'll just see how it unfolds is typically how people think about it. Where again, in romantic relationships, you can't just go someone, you have to eventually tell them that you're not interested anymore. And so Pete, to your point around there's no rules and regulations or talk tracks or, you know, ways to navigate friendships, I think make them extra tricky. Um, And I don't, this might be controversial to say, but I'm learning that I don't know if anyone, if everyone, sorry, values friendships as much as I do is also something I'm learning. Some people don't. Some people are really content with their core family and that's it. And that's okay, but that's not me. And I, and I think that's the other piece is as I'm evolving with some of my friendships, the ones that I'm either leaving behind or, or drifting are the ones who aren't, don't integrate and don't invest time in friendships is what I'm learning. Mark. Yeah. You want to add something? Yeah. I, I think what you're describing resonates. It's like this idea that uh, people all look at friendships differently and appear. Wow. You nailed it when you said like, I've never thought of it that way. But when you said, wow, like we don't have a playbook, we don't have structure for how this goes, especially I would say if I look at my parents' generation, of course they have friends and uh, but it is, it's an evolving thing. It's like, how are you maintaining and investing in friendships in your thirties? And how are you doing it once you've had children or you've gotten married or you found a significant other that you're committed to. And you're right, Diana, like some people really turtle when they hit certain transitions or they change their perspective. And, um, it's not easy. And I can think I can count on one hand, the times I've had probably like really like where my heart's pounding style conversations with friends over a lifetime. Uh, it doesn't happen often. And it's far easier just to push things under the rug and just say like, well, you know, things will work out and I'm going to let this one go. Whereas, as you said, in a committed relationship, the hope is if you want it to last and thrive, you're, you're, you're trying to bring those up always and, and, and address them. So it's not easy. I think for me, like what I think about with friendships is energy and energy flow. And it's like, I'll give energy and I hope I receive it. And if I start feeling like the energy is really one-sided, that's a signal. And if I, then I start reflecting, is this something I want to be fighting for? And that's also a signal depending on how I'm feeling. And, um, I've come just to, to terms with the fact that life is kind of like this, this river and you're flowing down. And sometimes you have friends that serve and you serve them for a certain stage of their life and others you hope and can foster ones that you can go through all these life transitions. Like I hope like we get to all three be old and gray and, uh, coming back to some of these concepts and we can go through that transition and, yeah, I think it just comes down to um, that energy. I think you make such a good point around energy. Um, Mark, but can I, you know, underline one thing you said in there that I thought was such a pivotal question is, is this worth fighting for in friendships? I think is a difficult question to answer, especially with some of our more ancient friendships. Because for me, the tension becomes, am I hanging on to this person because it's historical and because it's comfortable and I feel like a shitty person for saying goodbye to someone I've known for 20 years. Um, but at the end of the day, it's like, if we're, if I'm not receiving anything from this, if it's really one-sided, do I really want to fight for this now? Like, when do you know to call a time of death? And I think that's particularly hard with longer standing friendships. Um, and I've had a couple in my life where I've known them for a long time and it, 
over time, I just, it just, that little voice inside you is like, this is really not a friendship anymore. But it's hard to get to that point to acknowledge yourself and say, we actually don't have a friendship and we just need to cut ties. It's really actually hard to come to that place. Well, I know uh, we're approaching the end of our our time, but um, I do want to ask one more question before we all go our separate ways for now. Um, And it goes back to the Ikigai project and uh, the reason for being, the reason we wake up in the morning. There are many, many different reasons that we you know, do what we do every day. But in terms of relationships in our lives, um, how do you feel like it impacts your ikigai, your reason for being? I know it's a a big one. It could be something you take from this conversation today, an aha moment or a lesson you had from it. But um, I'm going to toss it first to Mark, and then we can go around the horn from there. It's very topical. I'll answer this in a weird way. I was at a, a friend gathering last night, and I asked a kind of obviously, uh, table topic style questions. I was just thinking in my head to hear what people had to share. And I asked the question, would you rather live the rest of your life alone in a wood cabin, um, you know, with, with comforts and whatever food, or would you rather live in like a, a shanty falling apart tent on a beach, but you're amongst a community of people. And, uh, I was more erring on the side of, of cabin to be honest, but, um, even through this conversation and just reflecting on it more, I think for me, how it relates to Ikigai is like, at the end of the day, we're social creatures. And um, this idea of of Ikigai, it's so related to happiness and fulfillment. And when I've studied movement and teacher training in the past, um, this one thing just hit me so hard. It was like this idea that you can be an amazing mover and be so, um, you know, uh, hitting high heights in your your mobility and whatever, your strength or what you're, whatever you're pursuing, but you're going to hit a ceiling. If you're going to be practicing alone, the real potential comes when you bring a partner into your life and the diversity of movement, the adaptation, the things that are possible, the possibilities just open up infinitely. And that obviously increases as you bring friends into the the fold. So yeah, I think there's a lot of relation between Ikigai and um, relationships. So how about you, Diana? Well, Mark said that's like, that's the hard one to beat. We're competitive. So I'm like, how do I? <laughs> yeah, we should have saved him till the end. Beat that one. <laughs> yeah. He should he should always be the ender. <laughs> you know? um, I so I'm gonna use a quote by like a clinical psychologist. I'm sure you guys know her. I, I I'm absolutely obsessed with her work, Esther Perel, and she talks a lot in her work about the quality of the, our relationships determines the quality of our lives, and that's very much been I think my mantra when I think about the purpose around relationships and healthy relationships is, and and this is piggybacking off of what Mark said, is we are, we fundamentally and primarily need belonging and connection. And for me, when I see myself 80 years old, I don't want to be alone. Right. And I think the other piece of this is we are multidimensional people. We can bring out different sides of us depending on who's in the room or who are around. And for me, that's what makes that's what makes me feel alive. That's what makes me enjoy life. So if I'm only anchored to my partner or if I only spend time alone all the time, then I'm not I'm not bringing forth the other dimensions and sides of me that are equally important to my core. Right. Because every friend I have, every relationship I have is going to bring me a different flavor. And this is what keeps life interesting, I think. Um, so it was a lot of what it was very like a common red thread with what, what Mark said. But I, I don't think we're wired to be solo, solo people. Yeah. 
I love that. And there's a great longitudinal study. I think the longest one in the world conducted by Harvard that shows there's a direct correlation, no, not a correlation, a causation where people feel happier at the end of their lives because of the relationships that they had. That's like the biggest indicator. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a no brainer in terms of maintaining really strong relationships, um, and, and, and nurturing them throughout your, your life. And, yeah, I think for me, you know, uh, lessons I'm taking away from this is the importance of, of vulnerability um, with with every relationship, like practicing practicing that on a on a regular basis, creating space for reflection as well, because it's sometimes easy to just let a, a relationship flip, you know, slip away. Um, you know, seeking help when you need it, uh, whether it's through friends or resources, therapy, which we touched on as well. Like I'm. I, I'm constantly trying to, you know, engage in my relationships in a better way by seeking help and and guidance. And um, sometimes you just need that to get out of that rut um, and whatever that might look like for, for all of us. So I think on that note, we can end it. Maybe there will be a part two to this because this was such a great conversation. I think we were just hitting our stride as we were, we we're getting into it. But, um, you know, on behalf of Mark and I, Diana, thank you so much for joining this conversation. It was fantastic. And I uh, uh, hope everybody who was listening um, took something away from it. And uh, we hope to see you in our future episode. See ya. Thank you so much for listening. Special thank you to Hugh for the theme music. You can check them out at herehue.bandcamp.com. If you're interested in learning more about the Ikigai Project, you can check out the blog at ikigai.blog. And if you found this content useful, please subscribe or tell a friend or family member about this podcast. I'll see you next week for another episode of the Ikigai Project. Take good care for now, everyone. I need to